Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible, and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and has just been released. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource, or order from your favorite online retailer. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. All my life, things have bothered me. I've never had a week without something somehow irritating me, worrying me, disturbing me, driving me crazy, or at least leaving me a little uneasy. Maybe some people are born with such a sanguine personality that nothing bothers them, but most of us know what it's like to fret. But what does God have to say about it? In this series of podcasts, I'm devoting time to three different passages of Scripture, and I believe, this is my opinion, they are the most pronounced passages in the Bible on the subjects of worry and anxiety. The first is Psalm 37, and today we're going to end our study of this passage. This is a long psalm of 40 verses, but I'm only tackling verses 1 through 8, and I decided not to rush through them because every phrase has become so rich to me. If you're jogging right now, don't worry about opening your Bible. But if you're at your table or maybe on the porch swing, open your Bible with me to Psalm 37. Let me paraphrase this passage by way of review. God the Father commands us, do not fret or yield to anxiety, especially because of other people and what they may say or do. Instead, trust Him completely with everything. Stay busy doing what he leads you to do every day. Feed on the attribute of the faithfulness of God. You especially do that by reading scripture. Delight in the Lord and he will give you his desires for your life. Commit everything to the Lord and rest in him. And now we come to the next phrase, which is in Psalm 37 verse 7. It says, wait patiently for him. That's the seventh command we encounter in this passage. Wait patiently for the Lord. When we have something that is bothering us, the Bible says, do not fret, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. But what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Do you know there are two books in the Bible that use this phrase over and over? In the rest of the scripture, we can see the concept expressed in other ways, and there are a scattering of times and other passages where we're told to wait on the Lord, but by far, there are two books in the Bible that use this expression over and over and over again. And the first, of course, is here in the book of Psalms. Nearly 20 times, the writers of the Psalms tell us to wait on the Lord. If you have your Bible open here to Psalm 37, notice that we have three occurrences of this phrase just in this one chapter. Here it is in verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Two verses later, notice, those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the land. And in verse 34, look again, wait on the Lord and keep his ways and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. 
You know, I'm tempted to go through the entire book of Psalms and show you all the many wonderful times this phrase occurs, but it would take too long, and that's a study you can do on your own. The other book in the Bible that talks a great deal about waiting on the Lord is the prophet Isaiah. There is a well-known verse, for example, in Isaiah 40, which says, Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. I think that Isaiah must have read the Psalms that he had available to him in his day and noticed this phrase, and he wove it again and again into his sermons. So another good way of studying the phrase, wait upon the Lord, is to trace it through the book of Isaiah. But now let's ask this, what does it really mean to wait upon the Lord? The truth is that when our lives are under the control of Jesus Christ, he is not known for working according to our agenda. We are supposed to be living according to his agenda. He has his own timetable and his own schedule. And when we're ready for him to work in some area of life and he doesn't, we have to trust that he will do it if he deems best, and he will do it at just the right time from his perspective. And the interval between our wanting and his working is called waiting. And that's where faith is developed. That's where faith is built. That really is what faith is. The interval between our wanting and his working that is called waiting, and that is the essence of faith. Remember when Lazarus was sick in the New Testament, and the sisters called for Jesus? What did he do? He tarried. He waited where he was for several days, and it appeared that when he showed up, he did so too late. The worried family waited and waited, and when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha couldn't understand why Jesus had tarried. But our Lord was operating as he does according to his own timetable and schedule. The unfolding of the events of our lives have thousands of moving parts, and only a master chronographer could arrange everything with perfect precision. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Let's imagine that a man named Thomas Yang of Yorktown was just today promoted to the presidency of his local bank. Thomas is 55 years old, and he is a Christian. And for him, this is a great opportunity to serve his community as a premier Christian businessman and a banker in his town. He couldn't be happier if he had been appointed the king of a vast domain. He knows that God has prepared him for this opportunity. But this event didn't just actualize suddenly from nothing. 10,000 different events occurred, many of them unknown to Thomas, all of them covering well over a century that led to this moment. What do I mean? Well, a hundred years ago, a group of men and women in Yorktown decided to pool their investments and start a bank for their city. The bank no longer started than the Great Depression struck, and the bank narrowly closed its doors, but another team of businessmen and businesswomen stepped in and saved it. Townspeople gained confidence in the bank, and it thrived. One president after another came and went, generation after generation, all building the institution into one that would create the opportunity Thomas Yang embarked on today just at the right time. And at the same time, on a totally different set of tracks, as it were, 
Mr. Yang's ancestors moved to America a year before the Yorktown Bank was originally established. They happened to move into the same city, Yorktown, and furthermore, Thomas's father, who was a farmer, was an excellent money manager. He helped Thomas open an account when the boy was only 10 in that very bank. Thomas also had a math teacher in high school that he admired, and Thomas thought about becoming a professor of mathematics. But to earn money during college, he got a job as a teller at the Yorktown Bank. When he graduated from college, Thomas put in his resume at a bank in Boston, where he wanted to move because of a girlfriend who lived there, but he didn't get the job, and eventually his girlfriend broke up with him. His father grew ill, and Thomas felt that he should stay in Yorktown after all, but he worked at the bank for a very difficult manager, and so he quit his job there and started working for a nearby credit union. One day, a beautiful young customer walked into the credit union, and to make a long story short, within two years, they were married with a baby on the way. Meanwhile, the difficult manager at the Yorktown Bank died of a heart attack, and the bank offered Thomas the position. Now, some years later, he couldn't be happier. He has a wonderful wife, two children. Now he has the president's chair at the local bank and a great platform for personal ministry and community leadership as a Christian businessman. Now, I've left out thousands of parts of that story, but you get the idea. The unfolding of our lives involves thousands and thousands of moving pieces, most of them out of our control. To the world, it's all a matter of coincidence, and it often leads to disaster and disappointment. But for the child of God, it is a matter of God's brilliant, overruling providence that leads us to his perfect will. It says later in Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now, along the way, from our perspective, we suffer setbacks and disappointments and delays, but God knows the calendar better than we do. So when things are not happening at the speed that we want them to, what do we do? We trust the Lord, commit it to Him, and wait patiently for the Lord. So here's the principle. When we have done what we can do, we have to wait for the Lord to do what He alone can do. And the time between our wanting, and the Lord's working is called waiting, and that is the margin of faith. When you have a yearning for something to happen and you've done what you can reasonably do without forcing the issue, you have to adopt Psalm 37.7 and wait patiently for him. When you've encountered a setback or a disappointment that's taken the breath out of your lungs or the wind out of your sails, you have to adopt Psalm 37.7 and wait patiently for God and his perfect timing. There's a little poem by J.J. Lynch that says, His wisdom is sublime, his heart profoundly kind. God never is before his time and never is behind. So we rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, there is one final command in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 8. So let's pick it up where we left off in the middle of verse 7. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. 
cease from anger, and forsake wrath. It only causes harm. Now, I want to reset the scene and remind you of my theory from Psalm 37. Over and over, this psalm tells the readers to go forward into the land and settle down and dwell there. You have inherited the land, the writer said. I don't think David was simply using some kind of metaphor. I think he was speaking literally. When God promised to give Abraham the territory for his emerging nation, the Lord specified that the boundaries of the promised land for Israel would be from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. Joshua and the Israelites of his generation only conquered and possessed a portion of that land, nor did any other succeeding generation until David came along. But David was an avid student of the Old Testament scriptures that he had in his possession, and he clearly felt compelled to press onward and to possess additional territories of what God had originally promised Abraham. I deal with this in the first episode of this series. We know from history that David greatly enlarged the kingdom. If you have a Bible atlas or an online set of Bible maps, look at the map of David's kingdom of his conquest. He expanded the borders of Israel into the Philistine area, which today is called Gaza or the Gaza Strip, and to the northwest all the way to Damascus, and to the south and southwest all throughout the areas of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. In today's terms, we would say that he occupied the Gaza Strip and most of Syria and the nation of Jordan. So my theory is that Psalm 37 was written to the Jewish settlers who went into these newly conquered lands. Now, the Canaanite tribes who were indigenous to the areas were unbelievably wicked. We have to understand they were ISIS wicked. They were Nazi wicked. So these settlers had to live among some of these survivors of David's war who were very, very evil people. So in Psalm 37, David said to these brave Jewish settlers who were establishing settlements and communities in this area, don't be agitated by those who remain. Do not fret about those Canaanites. Instead, here's what to do. Trust in the Lord. Do all the good you can do. Do the next thing. Dwell in the land and enrich yourself with the truths of God's faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and let him give you his desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest in him. Wait patiently for him to work. And finally, in verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath. In other words, don't stew about those people who view you with hostility and don't let them get to you. The Living Bible says, stop your anger and turn off your wrath. Could it be that simple? Can we just turn off our wrath? Well, yes, I believe we can. It's not easy, but it is simple. You know, something can be simple without necessarily being easy. But let's imagine a scenario from biblical times. Here are some settlers who have moved into the town of Kir Moab, which we know was a town in the newly occupied territories that David had conquered. No doubt a garrison of Israeli soldiers was stationed there, and perhaps a group of 200 or so settlers moved into the area. I'm just speaking hypothetically. 
David said, you can go in there and you can have the land and you can have the houses and you can expand the kingdom for the Lord's sake and you can settle down and it's a very desirable place and you can have it for nothing if you are willing to go and possess the land. So here's a family, let's call them Amasa and his wife Anna. They have three children, they pack their bags, they move from their cheap, dirty hovel that they occupied in the outskirts of Bethlehem. They travel with maybe a hundred others under military escort, and they finally arrive in Kir Moab, and they move into a very nice house that once belonged to a wicked idol maker. Now, Amasa and Anna and the others are under some level of military protection, but those surviving Moabites, they're hostile. They shout names. They hate the newcomers. And one of them threw a rock and hit Anna and badly bruised her shoulder. One of the Moabite boys got into a fight with one of Amasa's boys, and they were just under constant ridicule, hostility, and harassment. What David told these settlers was, well, yes, you should certainly protect yourself and maintain your rights, but do not sit around getting more and more angry. Stop your anger. Turn off your wrath. Do not become agitated. Do not fret. It only causes harm. There are better things for you to do. You can trust the Lord with it and go on. The caravan moves on even when the dogs bark at it. Now, this is an amazing bit of psychological brilliance, and it's a line of thought that extends throughout the Bible. For example, look at the example of the Lord Jesus. He was brutalized by Roman soldiers, and you can list all the reactions he had to his sufferings. But there is no moment when we're told that he lashed out in anger. And that's amazing. He grieved, he prayed, he wept, he shouted, he groaned, he forgave, he suffered, but he never lost his temper at his tormentors. An old song says he could have called 10,000 angels but he said, Lord, into your hands I am committing it all. And we see this same attitude expressed in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. In fact, I think this little paragraph near the end of the 12th chapter of Romans is a very good explanation of the phrase in Psalm 37, verse 8, that says, turn off your wrath. The book of Romans says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To me, the key phrase there is leave room for God's wrath. No abuser is going to get off scot-free. God is a God of justice. You cannot always settle the score, but he knows how to do it. So you have to release your anger and allow him to work. Now, I'm 67 years old, so you can imagine that over the decades I've had a lot of moments when I've gotten angry or embittered by someone who hurt me or who took advantage of me or who I felt cheated me or offended me or disagreed with me or in some way abused me. And believe me, I can get as angry as anybody. 
I tend to internalize my anger until it just explodes. And I'm so embarrassed looking back at some of those moments when my anger erupted. But over the decades, I have learned a little something about this. I'm for sure not perfect at it. But I have learned how to take a long walk or to pace back and forth in my study and to say, Lord, I am angry right now. I'm as mad as fire. But I cannot do anything about this that will make things better. Anything that I would do is only going to make things worse. It will only do harm. But Lord, you can track down and deal with the person that has upset me. If I'm in the wrong, you can help me. But truthfully, I think this other person is in the wrong, and I cannot really even the table or settle the score. So Lord, right now, I am just turning them over to you. I'm going to leave room for your justice and your wrath. Right now, I am officially transferring this case to your jurisdiction, and with your help, I'm going to trust you to either convert that person or convict them. Now, help me to release all of this bitterness and get on about my life. And do you know when I've done that, I have never failed to feel my blood pressure go down. I may be wrong, but I believe this is what the Lord was saying to us in Psalm 37, verse 8, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So that's our study of Psalm 37, verses 1 through 8. There are many other wonderful verses in this psalm, but I've so fallen in love with the opening paragraph that I've taken five episodes to break these verses down for you. I hope it's been helpful to you. Let's simply read them once more in closing, and I'll briefly annotate the reading by enumerating the points. The opening, do not fret. The Lord says to whatever is bothering you, do not fret, even because of evildoers, or to be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Instead of fretting, number one, trust in the Lord. Number two, do good. Number three, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Number four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give desires to you that reflect his will for your life. Number five, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Number six, rest in the Lord. Number seven, wait patiently for him. Number eight, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. And the conclusion... Do not fret. It only causes harm. So, my friend, that is what God the Father has to say about what's bothering you. What does God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, have to say about what's bothering you? Well, stay tuned. We'll look at that during next week's episode. I'm so glad you're following this podcast. Please tell others about it. It was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media, edited by Elijah Rowe, music by my friend Jordan Davis. For more information and resources, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Rob Morgan. Thank you for listening.